everyone welcome back to the show and thanks for hanging out today well i was planning on staying true to my word and getting on more of a weekly release schedule but if you follow me over on social media like instagram or facebook or you've watched the national news in the last week you've probably heard that my home state of vermont got hit really bad with some flash flooding especially in central vermont in the capital area My town got hit pretty bad, and so the production and editing schedule got thrown totally on the back burner. Everything went down Monday afternoon and evening, which was when I was planning to edit this episode originally, but my home got affected, so it was totally no editing going on at all. And thankfully, we didn't get too much damage, and it's barely a scratch compared to what a lot of other people have been going through in my state. Just to recap what happened during this whole ordeal, skip ahead about eight or nine minutes if you don't want to listen. But the weather for the day that the flood happened, it was heavy rains all day, like really intense rains, like something you'd get in a tropical storm or hurricane, like a lesser one, of course. And I don't think anyone was really expecting flash flooding or the magnitude of damage that this storm brought. So a lot of folks were thrown off guard and I was just milling about in my kitchen in the afternoon and I walked by one of the windows that faces the backyard of our property and we've got this river at the edge of the property out back and it's probably about a couple hundred yards from the house and The ground kind of slopes down a pretty steep incline and it's almost it's almost like a canyon, I guess. And this this river, it's more of like a brook. It's really pretty calm most of the time. But because of all the rain, it had turned into this raging river and we've gotten intense rains before and seen this brook turn into a pretty intense river, but this was on a whole other level. The water was going up the other side of the bank, which is this steep incline that goes up maybe 40, 50 feet from where the banks of the river are. And it was going up this incline, maybe 10 feet or so, just like blasting through everything. And it had also, the river had come up into our lowest backyard area where We have some trees and gardens and stuff, and it maybe came in about 15 to 20 feet, and it was just washing away all of the vegetation, and the ground was just gone, and also this fence that we had been working on repairing that surrounds the backside of our property. It was just wild to witness this. So my partner decided to 
go outside to get a better look. And I had run into the basement to grab something and saw that there was all this water down there. So it was like emergency go time. I'm yelling outside to my partner that we're taking on water and we need to handle this right now. And this was just from the ground being so saturated from all this intense rain that we had been getting for a whole day. And it turns out that there was this tiny little finger-sized hole in one corner of our foundation that we never noticed because there was stuff in the way. And that's where the water was just coming in. I think there were a couple other smaller holes where water was starting to seep in. And we had these shop vacs to vacuum up things like kitty litter or whatever. When we moved in, we had to do some work down there and we're just trying to fend off the water, vacuuming up the water as it's coming in. And we're like, what do we do? So thankfully my partner's dad was available. He got in touch and he told us to go get some stuff called flex seal, which I wound up going out immediately to our local hardware store down the street and they allegedly had some of this stuff available in stock, according to their website. And it was going to be the thing that plugged the leak. But the store was closed. They had closed early so that all of their employees could get home safe. And pretty much all the other hardware stores nearby were all closed as well. Because at this point, it's probably about 5.30, 6 o'clock. And the main street, the main drag in town was already getting submerged under the floodwaters. So I wound up having to follow a bunch of detours up to a Walmart and I grabbed the very last two flex seal containers that they had of this stuff, which it's like this soft rubber paste that you apply to something that's leaking water and it'll harden and cure to patch holes in pretty much anything. And it's supposed to work even underwater, which was perfect for our situation, although it took all of the stuff that we got to plug up the hole. We just kept shoving it in and shoving it in, and it just the water was still kind of seeping out. And we finally got to the point in the late evening where we finally got the hole plugged up and the water had slowed, but we still had a lot of water just standing in the basement and going under a wall into our garage and Unfortunately, my partner threw out her back during the process, so the following several nights, I was working in the basement just trying to vacuum up all the remaining water, getting fans running, carrying out all of our stuff out of the basement so we could actually dry the floor and make sure any of the woodwork that we have down there was able to get dry and also taking on the bulk of of kiddo duties uh, and stuff like that because my partner couldn't pick up the kids. (laughs) And yeah, so we had this whole like tent outside set up with all of our stuff that we had in plastic totes, thankfully, but there was a lot of stuff that we had that wasn't in plastic totes and things in the garage that we have to chuck, but it was a whole ordeal. And of course, the, the next day after the flood, it was like beautiful weather But then we get hit with subsequent rainstorms like every other day. So as I'm recording this right now, there's actually some pretty heavy rains going on. So thankfully, it seems that 
more flooding hasn't really happened because of this extra rain that we're getting, but it was just a wild, wild experience. I've never quite gone through anything like that before. So one of the, there's a lot of pretty wild pictures that you can find all over the internet. But one of the ones that I saw that stuck out to me was this train trestle on a ski mountain in my state where the trestle holding up the tracks was taken out by floodwaters on this mountain. And the actual tracks were still suspended 30 or 40 feet in the air. It was just like this really surreal sight to see. So that's been my life for the past couple of days. And Nature is a force to be reckoned with for sure. I'm going to be adding a link in my show notes for this episode if you are able or willing to donate some money to help with recovery to the Vermont State Flood Recovery Fund because there are a lot of families and people that are still in need of help. Any little bit helps. And before I get started with the episode today, just a quick reminder that I will be vending at the Sasquatch Calling Festival in Whitehall, New York. The event's going to be happening on September 30th between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. in Skeensboro Park. It's going to be an awesome event. There are going to be a ton of vendors. There's going to be some speakers. And at the end of the day, there is the Sasquatch Calling Contest right on the riverbanks in this little amphitheater that they have built there. It's a really fun time. So if you're in the area, definitely come out. Again, that's going to be September 30th in Whitehall, New York. The event is free and all ages. And if you're going to go to that event, come find my tent and say hello. All right. Well, I think it's about time to get into the episode for today after that long PSA. It's not often that I bring back guests onto the show, but I just had to bring back on Aaron Deese from the Hey Strangeness podcast, who was on the show last year. We had a great conversation about his background and his interest in Fortiana and all the things that he does with his podcast. And we even had this really fun, drawn out conversation about Jack Parsons on Patreon, which was a lot of fun. He can talk forever about Jack Parsons, which was great. So if you want to listen to that, you can go to my Patreon links in the show notes. But Aaron is back and he has a really, really cool update to share with you all. He's been working with Small Town Monsters and he just released his very first book. So sit back and relax, grab a snack or your favorite beverage and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I'm welcoming back podcaster, author, researcher, and friend of the show, Aaron Deese. And he's got a pretty big update to share with us today. Aaron has just released his first book, The Dogman Triangle, Werewolves in the Lone Star State, that has been published through Small Town Monsters' new publishing business. And it dives into witnesses and encounters and stories of dogmen or werewolf type creatures and cryptids that are stalking this huge swath of Texas. And I can't wait to get into it. So 
Hey, Aaron, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today, man? I'm fantastic. Thank you, Jeff. Always, always a pleasure to talk. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was great seeing you at, at Monster Fest. That was a, a real big event. And I'm, yeah. I'm stoked that they're doing Monster Fest 2. So Heck yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going. I'm yeah, going to break me too. in if I have to. But me too. Yeah, we just hung out like a month ago. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, since you last came on the show, you've had some big life stuff happen. You've become a father. Congrats again on Thank that. You. And you. Uh, obviously, you just published your first book. Super exciting uh, all around. Um, how, how has everything been going with the book and, and getting it out there and, and the, the response to this, this thing? Yeah, it's been great. Like one of the biggest challenges that writers face is getting their work out there. Um, and having, you know, what I affectionately refer to as the small town monsters machine behind it has made that super easy. So I haven't had to do a bunch of like marketing or, or anything like that because STM knows how to do that. So it's, it's. That's been fun because I've been able to focus more on just engaging with the community and responding to people's messages and stuff. Um, and the response has been great. Like people, people seem really excited about it. They really seem to to enjoy the work, and that's you know something I feel great about. But it's also something I'm really grateful for because you know the book represents the contributions of a whole lot of different people. So um, this one guy named Jeff is actually listed in the acknowledgments. So. Uh, it, it's you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't but, aware of that. Gee, thanks. <laughs> yeah, you're in there. Oh, um, shucks. For sure. But um, yeah, man, but, like I'm, this isn't a very concise answer to this question, but it's been great. It's just been a lot of fun. Now that the book is out, the movie is out, I can kind of take a step back and like, okay, let's just let it do its thing. <laughs> I don't have to work on it anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah. When you're doing something you, you love and it's it's fun, that's like the best thing. Yeah. So how did the idea for this book come about? How did you decide and find yourself chasing after Dogman stories in Texas? Yeah. Yeah. So it started with um, an episode of Hey Strangeness, which is the podcast that I produce with my wife, Sarah. Um, and it was our third episode. And we were looking for something to cover that was a little different from what we had done previously because we looked at older ghost stories and um, folk tales in the San Antonio area prior to that. And a friend of ours, a very, very close family friend, relayed this story about having a roadside encounter with what fits the atypical description of a dog, you know. Um, and I was like, that's crazy. I've, I've read about these stories in books and in movies, and now someone I know is relaying one to me. So that was the topic of the podcast. And then we found there were other sightings on the North American Dogman Research Project website that were adjacent to that first one and then it, it kind of just went from there and then when small town monsters contacted me about you know possibly doing a book with them um which i still can't believe that even happened you know right it's great <laughs> we're like do you have any you know ideas for books and i was like yes i have so many and i sent heather this long list of things um i don't even remember what all was on it but the dogman triangle was the one i had the most kind of fleshed out most research done for that you know was i think a little more some of the other stuff really, really weird. So I think this was a little more like, okay, yeah, this is something people might actually be interested in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and it just kind of went from there. And, you know, Heather, Heather was my editor and she also was kind of my research partner. She was able to find things that I was in search of, but hadn't quite managed to track down. You know, she of course hunted down all the witnesses for the movies. So, 
um, from there, it really kind of kicked into high gear because it wasn't just me screaming into a void that werewolves are real. You know, there, there was like a small team working on it now. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I kinda, again, just kind of went from there. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so for listeners who might not know, can you describe what a dog man is and where these stories come from, like historically yeah. and even in the modern day? So Dogman is, at its most basic definition, an upright walking game. Um, there are varying descriptions. Very often we get pointed ears, glowing yellow eyes, um, a muscular, maybe kind of a wiry build. You know, the, the, the fur is described sometimes as being thin, but usually they're described as being shaggy, kind of hairy. Um, that's a Dogman at its most basic, basic level. You know, from there, I don't know what these things are. <laughs> and there are ideas about them being shapeshifters, their ideas about them being spectral interdimensional beings, um, their ideas about them just being animals that we've misidentified or maybe never fully classified. You know, we get into all of that stuff in the book and the movie. Book and the, the book and the movie, sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's essentially what a dog is. As far as the origins of these stories, it depends how far back we can go. You know, lately I've been looking into Mesopotamian monsters and demons, and there are no fewer than two entities they're described as half canine, half human. Um, you know, crazy stuff in Kazuzu and Arudami somehow, which the blue somehow, that's the coolest name. I was looking for an excuse to drop that. Yes. Um, but then <laughs> you move forward a little bit, you know, or to a different place in history, and you have the legend of uh, King Lycolin, Greek mythology, who was turned into a wolf by Zeus for committing an act of cannibalism. And then you go over to Europe and you have the, the you know, warlock or witch archetype for the werewolf, wherein they generally had made a pact with the devil or were in possession of some kind of an artifact. The hexamorph is a, an idea that comes out of that time period. But then if you want to skip over to, you know, the North American continent, we have things like the Nagual in um, Mesoamerican folklore. And they were able to turn into jaguars, owls, and oh my goodness, dogs, you know. <laughs> you also have the Native American legends of the skinwalker. So it's difficult to say where this idea comes from because we can trace its roots back to so many different cultures who in many cases probably didn't have any prior contact with each other. You know, I'm not going to sit here and claim to be an expert historian, but when you look at something that, you know, the Mesopotamians talked about, and then you go all the way over to Native American tribes and they were talking about something similar, I couldn't tell you where this thing comes from, dude. I just know they've been around as long as we have. At least that's my, my opinion. Yeah, that's really interesting that there's so many different cultures spanning millennia even that have similar stories it's like could it be yeah. some kind of shared memory of you know uh, monsters from the ice age or is there something out there today yeah that people are and seeing I, like yeah it's and i love that you ask that because that's kind of one of the questions is like you know do we see these things so often because they're a part of our psyche or because it's an archetype we carry around with us like are they literally a part of us, not in the sense that we turn into them? And that's why we see them. Or like you said, is there, is there something out there? Is there some kind of animal that is that elusive that we've known about it this whole time, but we haven't quite managed to get it into the dictionary yet or an encyclopedia, wherever you put new animals? Right, right. Yeah. And <laughs> sightings are so few and far between that it's like, well, there's probably some kind of... Uh, small population, at least, you know, if you're not seeing these things everywhere, 
but I, yeah. I think I think back to uh, an episode I did about the Palmyra wolf pack in Maine, where this family experienced a pack of these dogmen type creatures that came and attacked their house in the middle of the night, uh, which was just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we see recurring stories of these things showing up at people's homes or, or you know, accosting them where they live. It's, it's in the story of the Viter which is one that I've had a lot of fun with. That's a story. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Where, you know, these people were just at home minding their own business and this thing shows up. Uh, very reminiscent of some Bigfoot stories where they're pounding outside, loud stomping noises. But in this case, you know, in other cases like this, these people report seeing something with a canine head, something with long claws and, and sharp teeth, not a primate. So. Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Um, so where is the Dogman Triangle specifically? What are the yeah. points that kind of encompass this area? Yeah, I've gotten good at answering this one. Let's see if I don't mess <laughs> it up. Um, so the northernmost point is the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, so southwest, you have San Antonio and the territory around that space. And then going all the way over to the east, you have Houston. So, and those triangles, were, those triangles, those points were picked the triangle for a couple of reasons. Um, not every single encounter necessarily fits inside the lines, so to speak. You know, if you're looking specifically at those cities, but those are major population hubs that generally people are. So when we're trying to, at least this is for me, you know, when we're trying to define these boundaries and say, when people ask, okay, well, what is this territory? Those three locations make sense. We kind of know where those are. If I say it starts in Paradise and then goes down to Kerrville and then runs over to Vidor, nobody knows what the hell I'm talking about. So (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of why. But again, when we look at the map, that's where the concentration is. It's in these major not in the major population centers, but in the territories surrounding them. And then they're randomly kind of interspersed all throughout. And the great majority of what we've been able to document is within this triangle. So that's you know, kind of where the whole concept comes Nice, nice. Yeah, that's, and that's a huge area to be looking for stories and witnesses because yeah. Texas is a huge place already. <laughs> it is. Yeah, we're over 268,000 square miles. It's it's just a ridiculous amount of space. So, sorry, my monitor's not secret. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you're, you're talking about a huge stretch of area. And there's no way that we know everything at this point. There's no way that we have every story written down. And even since the book has come out, I had people coming up to me at Monster Fest, um, complete strangers I've never met, who said, hey, really excited about your book. I'm from this part of Texas, and it was maybe a place adjacent to an area that I wrote about, or a city that actually did make it into the book. And they're like, and I've known about these things for a long time. A couple of people said, yeah, I've seen one, or I think I've seen one. So there's more, and it's entirely yeah. possible that as this conversation continues and more witnesses come out of the woodwork, it may not look like a triangle. We may have a circle. We may have an octagon. We may have just you know a thick saturation all over the state to where it doesn't make sense to draw lines around. But you know, getting this concept of a dogman triangle in Texas out there, backing it up with the evidence that we have, and then getting people's responses, dude, that's so far that's been the most exciting. Yeah. And it sounds like it sounds like there'll probably need to be a follow up uh volume two at some point as you collect more and more stories. <laughs> Man, I'd love to. I'd love to. There's nothing in the works officially, but there is a folder on my desktop titled Dogman Triangle Two. Uh, space question mark gotcha yeah. <laughs> so what was uh what was the research process uh like for for the book 
Were you going yeah. out and talking to to witnesses or just kind of going to, you know, looking through different historical records and newspapers and that kind of thing? Yeah, it was a, a little bit of everything. A lot of these locations I already visited um, or been to. The location of the Plum Creek Monster, my grandmother actually lived there at the time when I was writing the book. So I was in Lockhart very frequently, not very frequently, not nearly as frequently as I wish I'd been. But I was in Lockhart, you know, a fair amount. I was familiar with the area. Um, <clears throat> And that's just kind of one example because I've been, I realized the other day, I've been in Texas for more than half my life. So I've been, you know, lucky enough to have already been to a lot of these places and visited these areas. And then as I started getting more into the research, it was a lot of just digging, like you said, digging into historical documents, searching through databases like JSTOR, trying to find anything that might be relevant or that might have a connection to this. Um, and most of what I found did not. Like ninety-nine <laughs> percent, you're doing deep research of what you find is not necessarily relevant to what you're researching. But that's part of it. You sit through things and learn a lot along the way. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of fifty-fifty research that I did on my own and reading different stories and cross-referencing them, and then interviewing both witnesses and also people that I consider experts or specialists. Um, and there's a long list of people that are interviewed in that book who, you know, all contributed very valuable insights. But that was a big part of it, too, is compiling that list of, OK, what perspectives do I think would be valuable given this case or given this story? And then getting those people down for interviews and working that into the book. That was actually a lot of a lot of the work work, if you want to call it that. Yeah, hard hard to classify it as work when you're you're having having yeah. so much fun, right? Because <laughs> the whole thing is fun. Like, there's never a moment where I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. But like, with every project, you get you know creative fatigue, if you want to call it that. You reach a point where it all kind of becomes white noise, and you have to take a step back. So, you know, that's probably that was probably the biggest challenge. But yeah, yeah, man. Just a lot of just a lot of a lot of little things done over and over. <laughs> yeah yeah a lot, yeah. lot of miles long how did you like the filming process and like going around to these different locations with uh shannon and the rest of the small town monsters crew oh, i loved it bro i mean it was like a it was like a dream in the sense that i had researched these places and researched these stories and some of these witnesses that we talked to in the movie are featured in the book we just don't have the full story in the book because heather found them after the manuscript was complete it's nuts i love i love that tidbit um, so in, in that way, it was extremely surreal and extremely cathartic. When we went to Lockhart and talked to James Witter and heard the story of the Plum Creek monster from his own mouth and his own words the whole time, and you probably can't tell in the movie, that whole time I had chills. I was just like, this is real. This is, I'm talking to James Witter right now. This is amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah, that was and a wild I, I, part of the movie. <laughs> it's, I loved it. I don't want to say I have a favorite part because I, I think Eli and Seth and the whole team did such a good job on it. But um, that's one of the scenes I just enjoy because I love reliving that interview in my head. Um, but it, it, on the whole, dude, it was awesome. Like, these are people that I've respected and admired and been a fan of for a really long time. And so not only do I get to work on this project with them, but I also get to hang out with them. For, yeah. And we're hanging out in my home state. So I get to play tour guide a little bit. That was Yeah, cool. exactly. You know, that was fun. Very, very cathartic experience on the whole. But at the same time, you're working. You know, we, we would start filming at whatever time in the morning and we really weren't done until generally the sun went down, you know. Um, and if there were interviews scheduled for the evening, maybe after that. But you're also not working constantly. And we, we traveled about 1,300 miles total across the state of Texas. Was, you know, we traveled the triangle. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, 
it was a lot of long hours on the road. Um, you know, I really have to hand it to Heather and Seth, Zach and uh, Shannon, who were in my car for a lot of the trip, just for putting up my nonsense. Very much appreciated. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, just like a road trip with with people that you think are really cool, and you get to talk about werewolves all the time. That's a good summary. Yeah, exactly. You got to uh, meet and hang out a little bit with like Nick Redfern and Ken Gerhardt and, and Lyle Blackburn too. How was yeah. that? Like some like heavy hitters, you know? <laughs> that was another crazy surreal moment, dude, because I'd interviewed Ken and Lyle um, before when I was working with Paranormality. So I'd actually talked to them. And actually, I interviewed Lyle for the book. So we had spoken fairly recently. And then Ken and I had corresponded through email a few times and have some mutual friends. So, you know, that was cool. Nick, Nick is a little more of just like an elusive guy. Like he's not around social media a whole lot. I think it's because he's constantly writing books and doesn't have time. Um, but that was a cool moment because I'm, I'm finally meeting, meeting Nick Redfern. And all those meetings took place within three days. Like we, we did the interviews with Lyle and Nick in the same night. And then I think 48 hours later, we did the interview with Lyle. So at the end of that 48 hour stretch, I'm sorry, there's a dog out here. That, that's okay. <laughs> uh, my bad. I hope it's not coming from too much. I'm going to swear to God. I swear to God. Um, so that was a, a, <laughs> it's a, it's that was a resident a dog man in the house. He's just trying to say hi. I knew this was going to happen. Coming out here, I was like, okay, I think this is the best space I can use to get away from most ambient noise. But at one point, one of these dogs is going to have a fit. And at least that will lead into a dog joke. But um, <laughs> sorry, I'm kind of rambling, dude. But to just answer your question, it was cool. It was great. Like, they're all nice, down-to-earth guys. Like, it wasn't just us doing the interviews and then checking out. We went to dinner afterward. We just, you know, shot the stuff, hung out, had a good time. It was really cool. It was, it was just, just a fun time all around. Nice. Were there any other interviews that stood out to you similarly to the uh, the James Witter one in the in the film? Yeah, there there's a couple. Um, the interview with Nick, who is a gentleman, he's a fifth generation Texan, he's of Apache descent. Uh, that one I'm still unpacking. That was actually the last interview I I did for the book, and so. That's part of why we got him for the movie because I just talked to him. So I was like, all right, yeah, this is great. Um, he's there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there to unpack. There's a whole lot to think about. I won't take everybody through it. You know, check check it out. Yeah, so, check out the book. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, but then also the interviews in Sam Houston National Forest because those are the the those are the anecdotes regarding the largest, physically largest specimens of these things that I've ever heard. Um, all throughout the rest of the state of Texas, they seem to sit fit into a certain size profile. And when you get out to Sam Houston, that profile changes. So, you know, there's a lot of things in there that, that I'm still like, dang, because we just filmed back in October. This is pretty fresh. This isn't something that was done three years ago and it's been in the small town monsters warehouse. This is all, this is all pretty up-to-date information. So I'm again, still kind of unpacking it and going through it and thinking, all right, if I knew all of this, when I started writing the book initially, how might that change the narrative? So right. not the narrative, but the way in which I wrote. Gotcha. What would you say throughout all, all your research so far, where is the biggest hot spot of dogman activity in the triangle? Mm, that's a good question, man. That's a good question. Current modern day, either Dallas, Fort Worth in that corner or the San Antonio area, um, specifically Lake Medina, the Brazos River. Brazos is, um, you know, big river runs through Texas, connects to all these different bodies of water. Uh, 
we're in like a drought right now, so there's not as much water there as there used to be. But even stepping away from the Dogman thing, there's Bigfoot sightings and ghosts and all kinds of stuff associated with that area. But the Medina area is where, you know, the gentleman we talked about a moment, Nick, um, where he's from. And he he has anecdotes regarding all of these different encounters that have been taking place over the last 40, 50 years. And that's probably the area where I personally haven't had the opportunity to interview all of those witnesses yet. Um, that's another thing that's on the list. <laughs> Got to get down to Medina, which I only live about an hour away from. It's not that far. Gotcha. Um, and actually, right now, I'm sitting about 15 minutes from Lockhart, the Plum Creek monster. So that's fun too. Wow. Um, you're just, yeah, that's you're in the thick the of it. <laughs> yeah, man. Watch out. They're, they're right behind me. They are. They're out there barking. Idiots. Um, <laughs> or, man, I guess I'm kind of I'm kind of copping out on this answer here because I could also say Sam Houston National Forest. Um, very, very modern encounters there. And there are other anecdotal sources online that I wasn't able to verify while writing a book that talk about potential dogman activity out there. So, gosh, I'll just roll the dice and say Medina because I'm close to that one and I want to go investigate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you got to go to, uh, you know, a few of these these spots uh, for the movie. Uh, did you get like any kind of vibes when you went to these these areas? Um, there was uh, there was one where uh, one of the gentlemen you were interviewing said he saw one kind of jump over this fence, mm-hmm. and it's like when you're when you're in these spots, it's almost like there could be like a residual energy of it. You know, did you kind of get the feeling that like this is there was something that happened here? Definitely, definitely, and I'll one hundred percent at least some of that was self imposed. You know, because I'm excited and I'm. I'm having a good time and I can't believe I'm here and I'm so enthusiastic about this topic. But, you know, as you know, from doing your research and anybody who has visited places where strange things have occurred, there's a certain feeling about it. You know, I actually talked about this in the book when we visited Plum Creek. I personally, I can't speak for the rest of the crew, but I personally had had a feeling of like an energy about it, whether it was because something had happened here or because I was kind of completing this pilgrimage. I don't know. But I think there's a lot of value in those experiences. Like the first time I went to Point Pleasant, I remember just standing there and like, wow, you know, I've completed this journey. I've made it to this place. The same with Roswell, the same with Area 51. Like when I visited those locations, there's a real kind of surreal catharsis, but also this sort of adrenal charge that you get. So, you know, I don't know. Do that. If you're listening to this, do that. Go to those places. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Go to the places you're interested in. It's it's worth it for sure. Um, yeah, you, you got to get out there and see these things. If you if you're into Fortiana, cryptids, paranormal, UFOs, anything, um, you know, visiting Area 51 for me was like one of the bucket list items in my life, and that was just wild. Same, doing that bro. Two years ago. Same. <laughs> Same. Like it, it's it's. I'm, I'm sure we could have a whole separate conversation about Area 51, but yeah, you you just. You, you experience these moments that you kind of envisioned in your mind and sometimes they meet your expectations but very often they subvert them and it's just in a good way so yeah yeah for sure uh there was this one part of the movie that i found really interesting um where there were these carvings and old relics that have been found that have potential you know, connections to the whole dogman story. Can you speak on, on, on that for a little bit, like where these things came from and, and yeah. that kind of thing. So this is, this is some interesting stuff. And I'm glad you asked about this. And this is where you get more into the, the metaphysical aspect of this phenomenon. Sorry, I dropped my phone. 
this is, you know, these cases are some of the reasons that people will say, well, no, these things can't be physical animals because what about all the supernatural stuff? In Texas, we have the uh, paradise where I think the chapter of the book is a werewolf of paradise. And this was originally recorded by Nick Redfern in, I believe, 2013, if I'm not mistaken. And a guy, in short, Paradise Techno, Texas, was experiencing cattle mutilation on his property, witnessed an upright walking wolf witnessed the wolf disappearing, and then in the spot where the wolf disappeared, he found this stone carving um, of like a, you know, monster or werewolf type of face looking thing. Um, Nick had the stone in his possession for a long time. I don't know what's happened to it. He even teases that in one of the articles he wrote about it. But he did give us permission to put a picture in the book so you can actually see that stone carving. Wow. Um, the, the guy that Nick interviewed was of the opinion that stone carving conjured some manifestation or something, had some relation to this, this wolf demon thing he saw. Um, he believes the cultists were the cause of it. I don't have any more specifics than that. Um, if you look back into I believe, the 70s, you have the Hexam Heads, which is also talked about in the movie and the book. But these two little kids find these two stone carved heads in their yard. Um, some people think they may have been like Celtic, Druid artifacts or something like that um, not to oversimplify the terms sorry not to oversimplify the terms celtic or druid but you know, maybe something having to do with that that line of folklore um and they allegedly conjured this upright walking wolf the heads were passed from one person to the next and every person who had them <clears throat> excuse me experienced either sightings of these upright walking wolves or in some cases like poltergeist heads, sleep paralysis stuff like that no one knows where the heads are today um, there's another case out of Texas, which full disclosure, I asked Nick about this because I was so excited about this potential connection. Um, and he was like, no, I don't think there's a connection. I'm going to bring it up. There's <laughs> one of the stories we have in Texas is, um, the, the beast of bear Creek, which is allegedly a native American shape-shifting shaman who was trying to take revenge on the European settlers that displaced his people. And there's a carving inside of a limestone bluff. Cleo, Texas. Cleo is now a ghost town, and the property on which this carving sits is private, so you can't go out there. Um, but it was of this monstrous face with like fangs and really deep bridges in the eyes and all that stuff. And we got permission to include a picture of it in the book, and then it was a little unclear who had the rights to give us permission. So that's why you can't see the picture in the book, but you can find it on this out there if you do. Um, uh, portal to texas history that's the place to go <laughs> so you have yeah. three stories that may have some connection to these stone carvings admittedly the cleo face of uh, the bear creek monster that was a little tentative that's a little tentative because we do know who carved that we just don't know if he knew about the bear creek monster. um but there is this recurring theme of stone carvings having some kind of relation to these creatures can you still hear me okay Sorry. oh yeah yeah <laughs> they're going nuts okay uh why that is i don't know it would take me a lot more research i think to come up with an opinion but and we can talk about well are there metaphysical properties to these stone carvings because there's the idea that limestone and other minerals can have um retain energy or channel energy or something like that quartz is another one or or does it have something to do with like when these carvings are created do they manifest these things in reality i don't know i don't know. I spent a lot of time thinking about it yeah, yeah. There's a lot, a lot more work to be done to try and, and understand this phenomenon for sure. Yeah, there's yeah. A lot and I was uh, I was just thinking because you're talking about Cleo and and Bear Creek, 
Um, and that made me think of like earlier stories from, you know, late 1800s newspapers. Were there any of those that really kind of stuck out to you during during the whole process of putting this thing t- together? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few. A couple of the cases I've mentioned, like the Vider and the Plum Creek Monster, they had some news coverage that provided a lot of really valuable insight. Um, going beyond that, there are some stories out of Austin, actually, where I was living when I wrote the book, that the Plum Creek Monster might have actually traveled north and shown up in the Brody which I lived there for four years. I literally lived a couple of miles from the rest of the place. But you had more cattle mutilation cases. You had people saying that this may be the, you know, the Plum Creek monster making a migration north, which is not too out of scope. It's not that far. It's about an hour by, by vehicle. Um, and at the time, you had far less development, so a wild animal was yeah. its way right up there. Theoretically. theoretically. Um, that really sticks out to me, maybe just because I lived in the area, but yeah. Definitely, definitely the Brody Lane Beast, which I would like to do some more digging on, but that came across my radar very, very late in the research process for the book. So I haven't had the chance to go out to that area and look for people who may know stuff. Yeah, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. And it's certain, there's certainly going to be a, a challenge to, you know, if it's a really old story, it's local folklore, you might only find, you know, someone who, you know, they're their grandparents and they're also elderly at this point, you know, so uh, hard to. Yeah. Hard to get the exact story. But yeah, it's it's interesting when you live near one of these spots where where things like this happen. I remember back on um, one of the clubhouse chats and people were presenting different stories and um it might have just been focused on New England, where I'm from. And Carrick St. Laurent suggested to me to talk about the uh, the Hound of Cold Hollow in Vermont. And I had never heard about it. And I looked into it. And there's this town that's maybe like an hour, hour and a half north of where I am called Enosburg. And there was a local woman that was like experiencing seeing something like a dogman or uh, a werewolf type creature. She even got sounds recorded on uh, an audio recorder. And like, we don't have wolves where I'm from. At least that's the official story. There may be some coming down through Canada. But uh, when I looked into it further, I found out that there's a there's a state park that's half an hour from where I live. And there was a story from the late 1800s, early 1900s, where there was a logging operation going on and this lumberjack kind of went missing in the woods for like a day or two and then he came out and he was just like he'd gone mad and he was talking about seeing this like upright walking wolf creature out there and i'm just like oh <laughs> that's not too far from where i live yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, well, these is, anecdotes sorry no worries i mean you know this is over 100 years ago so who knows exactly what they saw you know could have been a, a bear with mange uh you know, or maybe there really was something, a, a Lugaroo that came down from Quebec. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what's, what's interesting. This is kind of an aside, but like these anecdotes about these creatures harming people, you know, they seem to be the stories that go back a little further. So you get to the modern day and we have some of these more gruesome tales coming out of like the land between the lakes and also Medina Lake down in Texas. But we have all these different stories because also the Michigan Dogman. 
you know, that was a bunch of lumberjackers that saw him for the first time. That's one of the early stories. Lumberjacker. That's not a word. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a bunch of men with axes working in the woods. Like, man, who saw this thing <laughs> yeah. initially or during one of the early reports. And then the one that you just mentioned as well. So it's interesting the way the archetypes are kind of recurring, even though they're all scattered around the place. That just kind of popped in. Yeah, yeah. So... I know that you mentioned earlier, uh, you don't really know what these things are, but um, can you kind of talk about some of the, you know, like the top three or four theories or ideas uh, of what they are and are they real? <laughs> yeah. So first of all, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and say this, if you need a soundbite or something, werewolves are real. I am 110% of the opinion that these things exist at some capacity. And I, I say that with as much conviction as I've ever said it. Um, now as to what they are. <laughs> That's why it's safe to say that something is real, because then if you immediately admit that you don't know what it is, it's okay to be wrong. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the theory that I most often subscribe to and the one that really kind of dictated my tone throughout the book was that these are unidentified. These are cryptids by definition. You know, things that we haven't managed to classify yet, either because they're very rare, very elusive, they're more intelligent than we give them credit for, um, something like that. Then we get into the crazy supernatural spectral cases where it's a lot harder to make that case. So from there, in that, those instances, I think we're probably looking at something that's old, something that's been here for a long time. Maybe it's what we think of as a Native American skinwalker. Maybe it's some kind of an elemental guardian or something. I think it's something that's been around longer than us and exists in a reality we are not capable of perceiving it and probably won't be within yours of my lifetime. I'm just, I'll, I'll probably die now. I'm okay with that. Um, and, <laughs> and then I think the third, third, oh, I had a good answer for that. I had a good answer for that. And I lost it. Oh, the other thing I think we could be looking at, and this kind of ties back to the first answer about it being an unclassified animal. These could be genetic one-offs. They could be hybrids. They could be mutants. They could be some random collection of canine DNA that takes on this form that's able to walk upright. But we can't call it a species necessarily because there's no sustainable breeding population. You know, the genetic pattern doesn't replicate because maybe they can't breed. Maybe they're just freaky and weird and other animals are not interested in pairing with them. I don't know. But I think we're probably looking at something that is either biological, something that is more spiritual, more interdimensional something in that realm maybe some combination of the two you know people argue well if these things are animals then when they report or when people report shooting them why don't they die why don't they slow down okay well they do slow down very often when we have witnesses who say they shot them we can even think about skinwalker ramps one of the first stories that came out of there they respond to gunfire but not in the way that we anticipate so then we get into a whole nother question like what is a ghost what is an interdimensional can you shoot a ghost what i yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry. I totally botched my answer on the third thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> these, these dogs are throwing me off. Um, the third and possibly the most likely explanation, I think, I think these might be archetypes like we talked about earlier. Just a shared memory, a shared idea, something we keep with us. And at random times when we're under duress, we see these things out of the world. Or maybe we project them out into the world. And then we get back to the spiritual idea. Maybe they're tall books or something. So, sorry, I kind of went on a tangent. With no, that's that, that's great. No, that's, there's it's we just don't know. In there's you could go down so many different routes, and there's so many different possibilities that are out there. 
I remember having a, a conversation with with Joe from Hellbent Holler back at Monster Fest, and he was talking about, um, you know, people have this idea beyond like you know it's a biological creature, it's a relic, something from the Ice Age or some something paranormal. Um, there's also there's a, a school of thought that thinks there could be some kind of uh, genetic experimentation by whether it be the government or some clandestine group that's you know trying to make you know super soldiers and that kind of thing what's your what's your take on that do you think that's there's any credence to that or is that just uh you know a, a wild that's, fantasy <laughs> that's a fun one dude and that is something i've heard some conjecture about you know, we hear about some of these stories in other areas and people saying yeah i know that the government i haven't done enough research on this to say but that is something that we hear about and then you also kind of get into some of the more conspiratorial aspects of this. Like there are anecdotes that, you know, parks and recreation and, and the wildlife department, maybe even the FBI, Border Patrol, are aware of these things and are covering up their existence. I'm not going to say that that's true. I'm not a conspiracy guy. I enjoy researching that stuff, but I don't. I don't know. But there is conjecture to maybe support that. And if they were some kind of genetic experiment gone wrong, or even gone right from the start, maybe this is how it's supposed to be. These things are supposed to be out scaring people, and <laughs> causing all sorts of weird chaos amongst the cattle of Texas. Um, it's not likely that anybody would be advertising that on the news. So it's another of those conclusions that we can't rule out. And it's also very difficult to substantiate. Like it exists in this this limbo space of maybes, you know? And then again, that's something I, I poked at a little bit in the book, but without any real evidence to back it up or, or you know, research I thought would, would stand up to, to criticism. Yeah. <laughs> pursue that very deeply. Yes. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard to, uh, to say those things without any concrete evidence or, or, or witness um, stories and that kind of thing. But um yeah. yeah, that makes me think of there, there's kind of like this growing, I don't know if it's growing, but you know, you run across it on places like TikTok and, and in Instagram where people are talking about, you know, a cover up happening in national parks. And maybe there's like cryptids or some kind of like monster out there that's responsible for people going missing. And it's just like, well, and like Teddy Roosevelt may have had a, like a part to play in it, but it's just like. I mean, yeah. are you sure about that? <laughs> like, yeah, like that stuff is fun. Okay, yeah. I love it. I can read about that stuff all day. I love the Teddy Roosevelt Sasquatch connection. I'm all here for it. But like, until the documents are rolled out of the Library of Congress, like, come on, dude, it's the internet. We can fabricate and say anything we want. You can have a. I could sit down today. I could sit down with about an hour's worth of time, maybe less, and create. An Instagram post, a TikTok, a website, a blog, and a YouTube video that all made the same point, and I can make it look like they all came from different people. And all of a sudden, here's a crazy phenomenon that's cited in all these different sources. On the internet. I think that's what happens a lot of the time with some of these things. I'm not saying necessarily with that theory, but I think that does happen. It becomes a, an echo chamber, and one source informs the other, and really nobody's informing anybody. But yeah, that's, that's just me. Just you got to go talk to witnesses and read bo old books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we have to trace these things somewhere. And like, yeah. yeah, the internet's a great resource, but I think it it it's also very, very dangerous because it perpetuates hoaxes and allows us to get caught up in like I'll give you a great example, the, the Mothman Prophecies. One of my favorite movies. I love that movie. I will die on this hill. I got to meet Richard Haddon at Monster Fest. Nice. Super cool guy. Awesome dude. I finally um, watched that movie 
uh, over the winter. <laughs> I was like, I really? Gotta, oh, I that's a great time to watch, watch it. Yeah, no, I was like, I gotta, I gotta watch this. Come on. <laughs> it's my favorite Christmas movie. It is by definition a Christmas movie. Nice. Um, <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, uh, but there's an anecdote in there about, oh, the Mothman was seen at Chernobyl. That kind of became a part of the mythology, but we can't trace that to anywhere but the Mothman Prophecies movie. And Richard right. Adams even said in interviews, I believe he said it in the Mothman Legacy by Small Town Monsters. You know, that was something I wrote as a part of the fiction, and it kind of just people picked it up and ran with it, you know. And that movie came out at the dawn of the internet age as we know it today. So, you know, you know, case study in that. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. Um what do you think is the what's the best evidence that, that we have that proves the existence of of dogman type creatures? Uh, independent witnesses, yeah. people who don't know each other, who have no affiliation whatsoever, who have no reason to lie. Um, and in some cases, we're talking about, you know, elderly hill country folk who have never used a computer in their life, who have never heard the term dog. When we contacted the, or when Heather contacted them to be in the movie and said, hey, we're making a documentary about Dogman in Texas. What's that? What are you talking about? And then you describe it to them and they go, oh, yeah, those things. We know all about those things. Um, so to me, independent witnesses and not just in Texas, you know, but when you spread this out over the whole country um, and you have all these different independent witnesses with varying degrees of credibility, let's be honest. Like there's a lot of wild stories out there as, as we discussed. But everyone we spoke with for the movie and everyone I interviewed for the book is a credible, in most cases, independent who had no knowledge of this phenomena, very, very little knowledge of it prior to having an experience. Yeah, yeah. And it's people like your friend who you called in the movie um, who relayed his his encounter of just seeing one of these things on the side of the road. And he has no reason to make this up, um, no. you know. Totally a person who's grounded in reality, just uh, your average Joe doesn't mess around with that kind of stuff. And it's just yeah. like, that makes it all the more real to me, at least. A guy, a guy who professionally, if you look at his career, stands possibly to have something to lose. If, if a story gets out that, oh, this guy saw a werewolf, that's not great for your reputation in a lot of professional circles. Now, the people you and I hang out with, we think that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's why he's in the movie. But it's not really like that for a lot of the rest of society. And so when people are coming forward with stories like that, you know, what's the motivation? You, you stand nothing to gain. It's not even like, not that Bigfoot witnesses are always treated with a lot of respect, okay? But at least the idea that I saw a Bigfoot is a little more acceptable in pop culture. It's more acceptable in the zeitgeist. So why would you say you saw a werewolf if you were trying to make up a story? Why wouldn't you say you saw a UFO? Why wouldn't you say you saw a Texas terror dog? At least that's something people are more likely to when you say, I saw a dog, man, I saw a werewolf, you're really gambling with the results that you're going to get. And when those kinds of people come forward and they roll that dice and take that gamble, that sticks out to me. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's just like, well, werewolves are just old fairy tales and <laughs> movie stuff. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, yeah, it definitely seems like there's there's something going on in Texas and uh, probably elsewhere I in the mean. country, too, and around the world. I mean, you've got. Was that the the Beast of Gavadin in in France, right back in the gosh, mm -hmm. what was it, the sixteen or seventeen hundreds? La Bête de Gévaudan, seventeen hundreds. Seventeen hundreds, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So this stuff has been with us for a long, long time. Um, how would you say this whole project has changed your your outlook on cryptozoology and 
Fortiana in general? It, I think it, it's definitely broadened my perspective because, again, I went into this very singular in my mind as to what these things are. Um, and after having done the research and gone on this literal journey and talked to all these people, it's no longer possible to make that conclusion. That it's just this one thing. Yeah. You know, and I, I kind of <clears throat> I think as, a, as I go, my perspective is evolving, but I'm sort of applying that to other phenomena that I research and other things I look into, like, well, is Bigfoot a, a, an animal or is it something different? Why does it have to just be one thing? You know, is the Loch Ness Monster dead or is it is it a ghost? Hey, maybe it's, it's some other thing. And uh, so I'm enjoying kind of going back and looking at other things that I've researched and other cases that I, I thought I was really familiar with, kind of with this fresh perspective. Um, but I don't know, man, it's still really early. Like I said, we filmed less than, I guess we filmed less than eight months ago at this point. Um, so I feel like I'm still kind of what's next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <for laughs> what sure. curveball is reality going to throw at me next? I thought I'd be producing like a four part podcast on the Mothman at this point that no one would listen to. And instead I spent two years researching werewolves. So what's next? What's next? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You never, you never really know. You can have a solid plan and then it just totally changes on you and you just got to go mm-hmm. with it. <laughs> now, uh, before we wrap up uh, for today, um, I just wanted to touch on this. Hey, Strangeness is back after a long yeah. hiatus. So welcome back, man. That must be exciting Thanks, to get back to it. Um, do you have any like, so new plans uh, for the show? Any new things happening or uh, yeah. what's going on with that? Yeah, so we kind of, we kind of rebooted our whole format. Um, you know, we had two separate podcasts that were airing on different platforms. One was Strange Conversations, which you've been on, and then the Hey Strangeness podcast, which were research topics. I realized it's incredibly stupid to have all my stuff spread out all over the place, making it difficult for people to access. So now we're alternating between episodes of Strange Conversations and the Hey Strangeness podcast, which will appear in the same feed. I don't know why this took me two years, but I finally figured out that's a good thing. Um, there you go. <laughs> So that's cool. We just, just a couple of days ago, released a new episode that I just, I didn't start plugging it. I just did like a soft release on it to to get it off my hard drive. But um, we finally started posting about it today. We did a deep dive into the supernatural world of The Simpsons, which I'm very excited about. So we worked on it for over a year (laughs) while we were having a baby. Um, And then we actually did an on-the-ground investigation of the Menger Hotel, which is a very haunted hotel in San Antonio. So we'll have an episode about that coming out. Um, a couple more episodes of Strange Conversations are in the works that I'm really stoked on. We actually just launched our membership program. That's um, great. You wanna, yeah, you can check out our Patreon and see what's up there. I won't spend a bunch of time on that. But yeah, that's what we're working on right now. It's exciting. It's exciting to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Be back, so to speak. Ah, <laughs> nice. And um, <laughs> obviously, you, you, uh, you, you've got some, you know, you're constantly collecting Dogman stories in Texas. Um, do you have any other other topics or, or anything that you'd want to write about in the future? So I am fascinated with the legend of La Lechuza, which is an old, 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 old uh, Latin American legend. And um, you know, my wife grew up hearing stories about it. My wife's cousins grew up hearing about it. And some of the older members of the family will say, oh, yeah, so and so. Thea can't remember her name. Um, saw one of these things back in the 60s. So. Like a lot of the other stuff I've researched, having that familial connection makes it all the more fascinating for me. Um, and that's another phenomena that I think if we really look into it, there's a lot of room for expansion and maybe ties to what we think of as independent lore. So I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun researching that in my spare time. I'm still doing the dog spare time. 
I'm still doing the dog man research. You've seen a weird dog in Texas. Call me. I've got things to talk about. Um, <laughs> and then I'm trying, I'm trying really hard to at least take a few hours a week to step away from this stuff and do something else entirely. So I've been playing a lot of Diablo four. Last, last few oh that's great yeah. i want i want to play that game but i wrote i uh i run a mac um and they don't have uh have it ported for apple mm, <laughs> computers they don't it's on ps5 and pc that's uh, playing on console yeah old old school longtime fan yeah. of the franchise <laughs> well anyway man thanks so much again for coming on the show today um always a pleasure to have you on we'll do it again can you uh, tell my listeners where they can find you um, online and uh, where they can get the book yeah. and all that? Definitely. Um, my website, our website is heystrangeness.com. Um, we are most active on Instagram at hey underscore strangeness. Uh, I update that thing pretty much every day. So that's where most of it is. Um, Patreon.com slash heystrangeness. If you want to check that out, that's, that's new. And then all the fun dogman stuff we've been talking about, uh, smalltownmonsters.com, smalltownmonsters YouTube, smalltownmonsters on Amazon. Obviously, follow us on social media. Any place they're doing anything, you can get info about Dogman Trying, um, which is now available. If you want the digital version of the book and the movie, you can have them in your hands today. So, yeah. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thanks again, man. This was a lot of fun. We'll, uh, thank you, Jeff. We'll catch Always you next time. Thanks for letting me ramble. Yeah. Absolutely. Anytime, <laughs> man. All right. Thanks. Thanks again, Aaron, for coming onto the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on. I'm sure we'll do it again in the future when you write your follow up to the Dogman Triangle or another topic entirely. And if you don't follow his show, Hey Strangeness, Definitely check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can find podcasts to listen to. A while back, he interviewed me and then Aaron and his wife, Sarah, had a kid. So it got backburnered for a while and they released it on their show a few weeks back. It was a fun time. So definitely check that out if you have a chance. And I'll have all the pertinent links for Aaron's book and podcast in the show notes for you to check out. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show today. And as always, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone out there listening. Those of you who have been here since the beginning and those of you who have joined along the way. Also, a big welcome to any new listeners out there, because it seems like there's been a new influx lately, so thanks for checking out the show, listening, downloading, sharing it around. It really gets the word out and is always super helpful. In fact, the Strangeology podcast wouldn't be possible or wouldn't be where it is today without the support of listeners like you. And we're just getting this train going, so there's still so much more to come. Stick around. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology to learn more about becoming a member. Membership gets you some really cool benefits and perks like shout outs, merch discounts to my shop, exclusive merch, ad free episodes, early access to new episodes, along with the exclusive members only strangeology beyond episode extension and more. There's even a t-shirt of the month club where you can get a brand new Homestate cryptid t-shirt every month. And I've got a ton of them. So again, that's patreon.com forward slash strangeology. 
Sign up today for less than the cost of a cup of coffee per month. I appreciate the support and thank you to all the members for your continued support and helping keep the lights on at Strangeology HQ. And if you're looking for another way to support the show, shameless plug, of course, you can check out my Etsy shop. I do my own designs and I've got a whole assortment of cryptid, alien and otherwise Fortean gear and accessories available on things like t-shirts, hoodies, long sleeves, tank tops. I also have stickers, magnets, prints, mugs, tumblers, blankets, enamel pins, and more. I'm always trying to add new designs as often as I can. And also I like to look into new types of products and items as well that people might be into. You can find this all at strangeology.etsy.com. Again, that's strangeology.etsy.com. I appreciate the support. To any advertisers or companies out there looking to collaborate with the Strangeology podcast or would like to be considered for an interview on the show, please send all business inquiries to info at strangeology.com or you can go to the contact section on my website, strangeology.com. And don't forget to give me a follow over on all of my social media accounts for daily updates and more content outside of the podcast. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and now on Threads. I'm most active posting short form video content on Instagram and TikTok. So if you're looking for more from me, definitely check that out. We like to have fun there. All right. I think that's about all for me for now. Aaron was able to hang out for a little bit longer for the members portion of the show to talk about more high strangeness and other cryptids, creatures, and legends within Texas. You won't want to miss it. Members, stick with me after this short break for Strangeology Beyond. And for everyone else, I'll catch you next time. Make sure to take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange.
All right, welcome back, members, to Strangeology Beyond, your members-only exclusive part of the show. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc 